Pastor Ben, it's my privilege to continue our sermon series this morning. And I want to uh, launch us into our conversation today with a question. And the question is, is just simply this. If you could go back in time and have a conversation with yourself, what would you say? Right? If you could get down with a cup of coffee or maybe a burger or whatever and, and just sit across from yourself, what is the feedback that you would give yourself? What, what are the words of advice that you, you would give yourself? I mean, it doesn't have to be a whole lifetime. I mean, just imagine, even if you could just talk to a 10-year younger version of yourself, wouldn't there be a lot to say? I mean, even if you're like 15 years old and you're in the room or watching online and you're just stepping into high school, and if you could back up 10 years, wouldn't there be some advice you would give to the kindergarten version of yourself? Maybe it'd be this. Maybe it'd just be cherish this moment, right? Cherish where you are at because right now you're coloring and you're cutting and soon before you know it, you're going to be trying to do chemistry. And this is far better, right? Stay here as long as you can just right here in the kindergarten and just, just love it, right? Enjoy it. Or maybe you're 25 and you're thinking, if I, if I could sit down with the high school version of myself, there'd be plenty I'd say. And you know, one of the things I might say is, look, that boy or that girl that you think is so important, your friendships are far more important. Because the reality is that relationship, that boyfriend, that girlfriend that you're hoping to have, that's going to last like two weeks. But these friendships, well, they can last forever. Or maybe you're 35 years old, and you're looking back at a 25-year-old version of yourself, and that 25-year-old uh, version of yourself, well, they're so in love. Right? They're so in love, and they have dreams of the future, and everyone's telling them, the parents are telling them, the friends are telling them, the brother, the sister, don't do this. Right? Don't walk down the aisle, but they're so in love. And if you could talk to them, and you know the future, you would say, this is going to be the worst decision you have made in your life, and it's going to cause so much heartbreak. Please listen to those around you that love you and cherish you. Or maybe you're 45. And if you could talk to the 35-year-old version of yourself, you would say something like this, look, start saving for retirement. Because I'm 45 now, and I'm thinking, you know what, I, I should have done this 10 years ago. I'd have so much more money, because right now I'm concerned maybe I will never get to retire. Or maybe you're 55, and you're sitting across the table from the 45-year-old version of yourself. And, and you know what you're thinking? You're thinking, you know what? You're working so hard and you're so wrapped up in your work. But you know what? Work will always be there. But the ones you love might not always be there. So make sure you, you lean in, even though it's a busy time in your season. Or maybe you're 65 and you're just about to retire and you're looking back to the younger version of yourself, 55 years old, and you would say to that person, I know you're looking towards retirement, and you're so close, and you're looking forward to the freedom, and getting in the RV, and traveling, and not having a boss tell you what to do. I know you're looking forward to that, but don't miss out on the people next to you, because those people are not guaranteed to be there if you get there. Or maybe you're 75 or older, right? You're nearing the end of your journey, and you're thinking, I, I would tell them a lot more than just one thing. Right? I have a whole lifetime of stuff to go back to my younger selves and talk to them. Right? If I could talk to the 5-year-old, 15-year-old, 25-year-old, 35, 45, 55, 65, I would have so much to say to them. In fact, if I could just back up one year and talk to the 74-year-old version of myself, 
I would have plenty to say to them. You see, all of us kind of have this, this feeling, right? We kind of live in this reality that we wish, right? We have that mentality of, I wish I knew then what I know now. See, sometimes life can feel kind of like a cruel joke because of that, doesn't it? It feels like you go through life and you, you gain this wisdom slowly over time through lived experiences and making mistakes. And then right about the time when you actually feel like you've got a grasp on what you should do and how to do it, your life is coming to a close. And if that's the case, this is a cruel joke indeed. But I don't believe this was God intended for us. I don't believe it's God's hope that when we finally figure it out and we kind of have a feel for how to navigate life and, and, and how to do things well, that he just takes us to be in his kingdom forever. You see, I believe he has a different way. And I believe that different way is painted out in our scripture for today. This is what he says once again in Revelation 2 as we break it down. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, over the course of the, of the last couple weeks, and we're going to do this over seven weeks, we've been in a series called Church People, where we've been looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. These are seven very real churches. They were historical churches, real people in a real time in seven different locations, going through seven different unique and very real situations that they are working through as they're trying to be a church together and a church on mission for Christ. And so as we've been exploring these churches, how I typically start is I go through the history of the church and kind of explain what the situation, what the location is like, and how that offered unique challenges to these specific churches and these specific people. But even though that's very important, the one thing that also keeps popping up, which is far more important, is not really all the details of the churches, even though that helps us a lot to understand them and help us to understand ourselves better, What's really crucial is not who's being spoken to, but who is the one speaking. Now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks and you've been paying attention at all, you know who this person is, the one who describes himself as the one who's holding the sharp two-edged sword. And the person, spoiler, is Jesus. It's Jesus speaking to these people, the same Jesus who is born of a virgin, who grew up, start his teaching ministry, would use stories to teach people and teach them spiritual truth, stories that were so impactful that large crowds would show up, stories that were so impactful that we still talk about them today, even if you're not in a church setting. If you're listening, you will hear on ESPN or around people, they will talk about Christ's parables and, and not really even realize their origin. That's how impactful these stories were. It was the Jesus who would do these miracles that would baffle the most hardened skeptic. It was Jesus who was falsely accused and went to the cross willingly to die for our sins, who rose himself from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. That's the Jesus we're talking about. This is the Jesus who's sitting in heaven and giving these words of advice, this feedback, this truth to these people. Now, as he describes himself, he uses this very interesting way of describing himself, which is pretty confusing, but I'm going to give you a little tip, a, a great little tip for as you're studying the Bible and reading on your own. If you ever run into one of these sections of scripture where you're thinking, I have no idea what that means, right? What does this metaphor mean? What he's trying to say? Well, I'll tell you this. This is what you do. 
when you run into this situation. If you want to study scripture well and understand scripture well, you need to take scripture and interpret it with scripture. Which means if we wanna do this well this morning, what we need to do is look for different instances in the Bible where we talk about and we learn about a sharp two-edged sword. So here's one of them. This will help us out. It says in Hebrews, indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So right away, by going back in, in scripture, we see what he's holding. He's holding God's word, God's truth, God's wisdom in his hand. But there's something more for us to discover too. Let's look, go to the book of John. This is what John says. It says, and the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So we have Jesus is the personification of the word, right? Of God's truth, of scripture, of wisdom. And he's holding in his hand the Bible, right? So what we're seeing here is this statement of I am wisdom. In other words, listen to me. Now think about this. Jesus was the only person to walk the face of the earth who never had any regrets, the only one who never had any regrets. There was no time in Christ's life where he thought, if I could go back to the 10-year younger version of myself, or if I go back to yesterday, that I would tell that person to operate this way instead. Right? He had none of that. Because every interaction, every conversation, every decision was wise. It wasn't like Jesus thought, you know what? If I, if I could go back, maybe I wouldn't be as harsh with the Pharisees. Or if I could go back when I was in front of Pilate and he said, aren't you going to defend yourself? Well, maybe I'd defend myself. Or maybe when I resurrected myself from the dead and, and I ascended into heaven, maybe I should have stayed a little bit longer because these church leaders, well, they're not really cutting the mustard. Right? He had no regrets because every decision was just steeped in wisdom. Which means for us, every time that the Bible speaks and every time that Jesus speaks, it would be wise to listen. Well, this is what he says. He says, I know, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. So he's talking now to this church in, in Pergamum, and he's saying, look, where you live, it's not great. In fact, it's downright horrible. Now, what he's not saying is that Satan actually has like a building or a house where he kicks up his feet in his lazy boy and, and watches sports, and this is where he lives. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, this place of all places on the earth is where Satan has the most influence. In other words, this is where Satan is sitting on the throne of the hearts of these people in this place. Now, just imagine what that would be like. To live in a place, to try to have a church in a place, to try to be a Christian in a place where it's described as where Satan's throne room is. Now, as we look into history, we actually see that this is very, very true. As we look at other historical documents about this city, what we read is that this was a place where there was a temple or an altar to a pagan god on basically every street corner. If you need a visual of this, this might help you. If you backed up into like the 1950s, and some of you experienced this, you remember this, 
In about that time frame in small town America, there was a church on every corner. And every Sunday, where were the people? They were at their own unique community and church. Now, just imagine that in your mind, but flip it to Pergamum. Instead of being in a Christian church with Christians surrounding you, instead you are in a temple worshiping a false god, and everything that you know and everything that you experience and everything that you're learning, you are steeped in this paganistic, satanic thought process, right? Everything around you is teaching you lies, which means that everything that you know and everything that you're living out is just infused with Satan's way of living, right? When you're in your relationships, you're dealing with it that way. When you're thinking about how you vote, you, you deal with it that way. When you're thinking about the school system, right, your friends, everyone's infused with that. And this is where these people are trying to have a church. This is where these people are trying to live out their faith. But here's what Jesus says about them. He says, yet, despite that, you were holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan lives. Now, this is high praise from Jesus to this church. Because once again, where are they living? They're living in a place where Satan feels incredibly comfortable in, right? His way is the right way in this place, and these people are living there. And what's so amazing about these people is that they're not straying from the faith, which imagine how hard that would be. If every newscast you listen to, every podcast that you listen to, if your teacher said, if every wise sage in that area, right, people you respect, if they were all teaching you in the opposite direction of your faith, how difficult would it be to hold on to your faith? But this is what Jesus said they did. They didn't walk away from the faith, right? They didn't run away from the faith. Even when people around them, like this specific person, Antipas, when they're killed in front of them, that's the type of consequences they were experiencing for being a Christian, they stayed firm. Now, for me, as I read this, I'm kind of wondering, what is Jesus trying to say to them about this place? Right? In, in my mind, I kind of have this feeling like maybe what he's saying is, get out of there. Right? Do you not realize where you live? You live where Satan's throne room is, where he has all this influence, and don't you realize that you're going to send your kids to the school there, and the teachers are going to think this way, and the leaders will be this way? And I kind of think maybe God is saying, Run. Run, run, run. Get out of there. Go to a place that's more friendly to Christianity. Go to a place that's safer for your family, right? Just get out of there. But that's not what Jesus is actually saying. In fact, look at this. This is how he describes it. He says, but I have a few things against you. In other words, the things that he has against them is not that they are living there. In fact, he loves that they're living there because what does that allow for them to do? In a place that's so steeped in satanic thought and, and, and pagan ritualisticness and all these things, they are the one voice of truth. They are the influencers in this very dark place. And then he continues. Once again, these are the things he has against them. You have some who are there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. So he, he shaked, makes this shift from, hey, I'm glad you're there. I'm glad you're influencing this very dark place. But here's a warning. 
And he takes them all the way back to the book of Numbers, to a story you probably haven't read and haven't thought about, or maybe you started your reading plan, but you were almost there, but you stopped because it's hard to get through some of those first books of the Bible. But I'm going to tell you about what's going on here. This is what they're hearing from Jesus. Their minds go back to a historical narrative of an interaction between this king called Balak and a diviner. I'll explain what that means in a second. And his name is Balaam. So here's what's going on. <laughs> this king, Balak, is, is living in a place called Moab. His people are called the Moabites. And the Israelites are making their way through the land. Now, at this point in time, God has blessed the Israelites, and they are, are growing, right? Their influence is growing. The numbers are growing. And it's very intimidating to this king. He sees them making his way through his land, and you know what he's thinking? They're going to take us over. Right? They're going to take over our land. I'm not going to have my influence anymore. I'm not going to be the king anymore. And, and he's very, very concerned. So he brings in this guy whose name is Balaam. Now, Balaam is a diviner, which means he can have interactions with God. So he speaks to God, and God speaks to him. Now, Balak, and a lot of people would think that a person like Balaam could kind of twist God's arm and get God to do what they wanted him to do. And so the king brings in Balaam and says, Balaam, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money if you can get God to kind of turn his back on these people instead of blessing them. I want to curse them. So Balaam goes off, he has a conversation with God, and of course God says no. Right? You're not going not to curse these people. These are my people, and, and we will only bless them. So Balaam goes back to the king and says, this is what God said. And, and Balak thinks he's playing hardball. So he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Let's go on a little trip. They go up to this hilltop so they can oversee all the people of Israel, all the, the large numbers of the people of Israel. And Balak says, I'm going to give you even more money, right? right? He, he just thinks if I give him the right amount of money, he will finally concede to me and he will do what I want him to do. So Balaam, I'll give you more money. Just curse the people. Balaam goes to God and God says, no. And, and God actually says to Balaam, what I want you to do instead is I don't want you to curse the people. I want you to bless the people. So Balaam comes out. He starts praying. Now the king is very excited because this is a, a prayer of cursing is what he's thinking. But instead, Balaam blesses the people. The king is upset, thinking that maybe Balaam is just playing hardball, right? Maybe he wants more money. He brings him to another hilltop. Same thing, offers him more. And Balaam comes back, blesses the people instead of cursing them. This happens three different times. But Balak is still concerned, and he's not done. Nor is the relationship between him and Balaam. And so they keep this conversation going, and sooner or later, Balak's like, Balaam, how do we get these people to be cursed? Because you won't do it. How do we accomplish this goal? And Balaam says, well, here, it's, it's very simple. What you need to do is take your people who believe different things from the Israelites and have them start interacting in, in really intimate ways. Like have them marry your people and be around your people and become best friends with your people so that, that all of a sudden your people have the ears of the Israelites. And over time, what will happen is they'll start doing what you guys do and thinking like you guys think and worshiping the people that you guys worship. And then you know what will happen? You won't have to worry about cursing them. They'll curse themselves. And that's exactly what happened. 
Over time, the people began to bleed these ideas together, and, and the truth that they had in their mind was slowly moved out by the lies that Satan was trying to put into their minds, and they brought this curse upon themselves. And so Jesus is giving this church a warning because they live in the heart of Satan country, right? There's lies all around them. He's saying, don't fall into this trap because if you fall into this trap, you are going to destroy your life. Well, he goes on. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You see, for this church, it wasn't just a warning that this might happen if you do this thing. It was also a reality already in a small way in their setting. Now, there was this group, and they were the Nicolaitans, and what the Nicolaitans did was they do what, honestly, a lot of people can fall into the trap of doing, especially in our modern day, is they would cherry-pick what they liked. So, like, I like this part of Christianity, I'll take that, and I like this part of Caesar worship, so I'm going to take that, and I I like this part of worshiping that false god or that false god, and then they kind of, like, weave together their own kind of personal, beneficial religion. And then what they did was they snuck into the church and they started teaching it. Which, of course, means that they're teaching lies within a setting where God's truth is supposed to be proclaimed and it was disastrous. And it's always disastrous. Every time that lies creep into the church and are taught as truth, it becomes a mess for the people and it becomes a mess for the church. So Jesus has a response to that. He says, repent then, If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's the solution. Stop doing that, right? Don't let the lies win the day and definitely don't teach the lies. And if you're doing that, repent, turn around, say you're sorry, and don't do it again because if you don't stop, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna bring the sword. What's the sword again? Well, the sword is God's word, right? This is truth. And the truth in God's word, well, depending on how it's being presented to you and and how you're receiving it, what's going on in your life, well, it can be exactly what it's implied to be. It can be an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon. You see, sometimes when we're not doing things God's way, the word shows up and it hurts when it hits, doesn't it? It can take us down. Sometimes it comes across almost like a precision scalpel. Like oh, God finds this area and he kind of pokes this area and we know it's tender, but he uses a sword to get that lie out so he can put his truth in. But then when we have God's truth in us and we're holding on to God's truth, the sword actually becomes a defensive weapon that protects us from the things and the lies of this world. So here's where Jesus ends. He says, let anyone who has an ear Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus ends with this statement, a statement that should sound very familiar now if you've been around here for a while, because every time he speaks, he points to eternity and the value of the message. Rather, this is a message, this idea of holding on to God's truth is not just for the future life. Someday, we'll all be in heaven. It's for the present life, right? It's present truth that affects our present day, but it has eternal consequences. So, if you could go back 
right? If you could go back to whatever age when you made that choice and you made that mistake, if you could talk to yourself, what's the advice that you would give? What's the wisdom you've gained in life that you would go back and say, look, I know you're 15, I know you're 25, I know, I know you think you know it all, but this is, this is what I learned after I thought I knew it all, right? What would you say to yourself? What would you say as a mentor, as a guide to yourself? And, and maybe you wouldn't even listen to yourself because you didn't listen to people then, did you? Which is half the problem. Maybe you just say, you grab yourself by the collar and say, listen, listen, listen. At the very least, surround yourself with people who are older than you who have made those mistakes so you don't have to make them. Now, the good news for us as Christians is, even though we can, of course, use mentors and guides in our life and people who have been there and done that, learn their lessons so we don't have to learn those lessons, the good news as a Christian is that we have access to God's wisdom and God's truth encapsulated in God's word where we can take the truth of God's word and, and knock out the lies of this world. That's why at New Life, we use this word transformation, as Pastor Eric talked about before in Confession of Forgiveness, is that we use the word transformation because in the Bible, that's what it says we are offered. In the book of Romans, it's very clear. It says, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which means, like I said, when you get God's truth in, it begins to kick out the lies. Now, this is a truth you know, right? We all kind of know, and we kind of nod our heads like, yeah, that sounds great. We kind of intellectually know that. But the problem is, is that it's an ongoing battle. It's not like a one-time thing where you read your Bible, and then you're set for the rest of your life. The problem is, it's an ongoing battle of Satan's lies creeping in, and the world's lies creeping in, and knocking out God's truth, or vice versa. Every day, there's an option to have the lie sneak in and the truth knocked out, or the truth coming in to knock out the lies. This is why getting access to God's wisdom solves the tension that we all have. I wish I knew then what I know now. One of the great gifts of God's word that he was trying to infuse into this church and into our church in the modern day is that this book is far more than just a book. His words are far more than just a conversation. His words are truth, are wisdom to combat the lies of this world so that we don't have to live with all this regret.